Trellis. Welcome back to Mid Wretched, friends. Welcome. How's everybody doing out there? Go ahead and take a silent second to answer. Okay. Okay. So when I taught theater, I used to have my kids, um, like when we were doing breathing exercises at the end of the day, (laughs) I would have them do like a, you know, like a four count, like diaphragmatic breath. And then I would have Uh them exhale a sound that represented their day. But I got a lot of feedback from my high school kids, especially my middle schoolers thought it was kind of dumb. But my high school kids were like, oh, yeah, that really helps. Like a to kind of have the, the to figure out like what sound like what sound you could exhale that represents your day. But then to let uh-huh. it go, you know. What would your sound be right now? Hmm. Okay, I think it would be. <sighs> it's usually my stress sound is like horsey lips. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, we had a lovely day. We went to the park. Um, we made slime. We had, uh, I made chicken nuggets and I marinated them in pickle juice because my husband saw it on TikTok. Oh my God, it's so good. It's delicious. I had it's no so idea. It's so good. Yeah, it makes them so tender. Yes. Super tender. And then like, it didn't taste like pickles, but it just had this wonderful briny like quality. Kinda, yeah. yeah. And my preschooler just gobbled them up. So I was like, that's a victory. And then before we started recording, like before I came upstairs, I was, I like grabbed a handful of them out of the air fryer and I'm just like, as I run up the stairs. It's like, we had a lovely day, but even a lovely day just feels like it needs this come down at the end of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's about where I'm at. It's hot. Okay. Yeah. We're about to hit a really bad heat wave. Yeah. The air conditioning unit I'm sitting next to says it's 95 degrees in my attic right now. Oh, shit. Yeah, but, like, the AC is working. But if it wasn't working, it would be 95 uh-huh. degrees. I guess. We've got my computers telling me it's 63 outside. So it's nice and cool right now. But I know that, like, by Wednesday, it's supposed to be up to, like, 93. Yeah, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Yeah. So uh, wear something nice to the wedding. I Nice and breathable. Has, um, I bought that star dress. I haven't tried it on uh-huh. yet. I just got it in here in the mail. So I have that. And I have a dress for backup that's really cute. I've worn it before. Less exciting, but yeah. But I really like the star dress. I think it's super I cute. I like your dress, Miss Bride. Guys, this will premiere after the wedding. So I'll tell you right now. My dress is silver with brocade leopard print. It is so cute. <laughs> it is so, so, so cute. I am obsessed with it. I love it love it i love it because i can say that and it sounds like absolutely tacky and horrid it's not not like body at all it's not it's so cute it's so great i read the uh the description to my fiance before i bought it and he was like no (laughs) does he really (laughs) yeah and then you bought it and then I bought it, and I I think he was sold on it. My head is just really itchy because I just got my hair done. Oh, you did? So, yeah. So I got these got these gnarly roots done. Oh, where's the money piece? She's gonna do that next week when I go in for the to get it actually styled. Oh, okay. So is that gonna happen before or after the wedding? Before, when I get it styled for the wedding, she's oh, gonna do everything. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah, know you yeah, were getting because yeah. I can't style. do my own fucking hair. 
I can't do my fucking hair. I don't know how to fucking what do my hair. Do? That's why it's that's why it looks like a fucking like straw, like limp noodly straw every fucking day of my life. Luckily I love pasta. <laughs> <laughs> my hair is cappellini. It's, it's beautiful. What's a wonderful pasta? Mine it is, is it is. Rotini? A pack of ramen noodles? <laughs> what is, like, it, not like the normal mac and cheese noodles, but like the fancy ones at the restaurant that, like, go around an extra time? Cavatappi. Yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're a capellini. I'm a cavatappi. Welcome to Midwestern. What, what macaroni is your hair? <laughs> Everybody has one. Everybody has a pasta hair type. Um, so yes, by the time this episode airs, um, we will be two married ladies. Yeah, just a married lady. Just trying not to destroy everything. <laughs> yep. I just I don't like weddings, and this is my problem. I know. I know. Like, I know. By the time this airs, <sighs> it'll be over. So we'll just be laughing about it later. We'll debrief you guys. We'll let you know how it went on our next episode. Mm-hmm. Leave the highlights and the lowlights. I'll let you know which Mick family members punched which of my booze family mm-hmm. members. And yes. yeah. <sighs> anyway, um, murder, true crime, your story. Go. We used to be good at these. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Is that a criticism? <laughs> guys we're both just like dead right now like there are no more thoughts burnt out in our little tiny brains but super in town ladies the last few brain cells in my brain are going to try to do this case justice because tonight's case is a lot lesser known case um a much more recent one um it is one of those ones i think i mentioned uh in our last episode like there's not much like videos or podcasts about this case that i could find there's one investigation discovery episode and that's really about it and some like local newspapers and nebraska does not like to fucking let you read their newspapers (laughs) really yeah, like the Omaha World Herald, everything is fucking paywalled. Like it won't even give you your like five free articles oh, a month. Dude. I did, and it, it doesn't put their newspapers. <clears throat> it doesn't put their new ones on there. That's messed up. Yeah, yeah. So Omaha World Herald, what are you fucking yeah. doing? Do you not want me to read what your news? Are you hiding? What are you hiding? This case. That's what you're hiding. And the world needs to know. It does. So tell us about it. All right. This is a little bit of a precedent-setting case. We're going to kind of talk about some weird things that happened in Nebraska. So because there's not a ton written on it, I will say there's a lot of pieces missing. And so even for our one surviving victim and the family, some vital information may never be recovered probably never will be recovered so if you have questions as you go along ask them and i will let you know whether or not i have have the answers good i can always count on you to do that 
This is the story of the murder of the Chandler children. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a kid's case. Okay, so fair warning on that, friends. Fair warning on kids and terrible things. Um, so we're actually gonna we're gonna start our story in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Um, we're just gonna pop by and kind of introduce some people. Um, we've been to Minnesota before. We're not going to spend a ton of time there. Not going to give it a full mid-wretched backstory. But Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota is where we meet Judy Chandler and Tracy Newman. Judy and Tracy met in high school. They were little high school sweethearts. Tracy was actually from Omaha, Nebraska, where some of his extended family lived. Um, I just want to give a little bit of the backstory as much as I have about these two. This is... A lot of this is just kind of like reading between the lines and assumptions. Yeah. But Tracy grew up a little bit of a hard life in Omaha. His father was shot and killed when Tracy was just nine years old. Mm-hmm. A few years later, by the age of 14, his family had moved and he was splitting his time between Omaha, Nebraska and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Gotcha. So he had kind of moved up there when he was in high school where he met Judy Chandler. Judy grew up in Minneapolis. This is where most of her family was that she was pretty close to. Just again, kind of reading between the lines, it feels like both of them had a little bit of a hard scrabble life. Um, There's not too much information about it, but there are several references. And she says herself that one of the reasons she moved to Omaha was because she wanted more for herself and she wanted a better life for her kids. Um, saying that really she didn't want to struggle anymore. She didn't want her children to struggle the way that she did. And that's kind of just where I'm reading between the lines. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Judy and Tracy got together when they were pretty young, like I said. I don't have exact dates on any of this stuff, but just kind of trying to do a little bit of math. They had their first child, Starsha, um, at some point either in their late teens or early 20s. Um, and then in 1987, they had their second daughter, Latara. And in 1994, they had their first son, Tremar. So, Starsha, Latara, and Tremar. Cute names. Very cute. I really like the name Starsha. Me too. It kind of reminds me of Sirsha. Oh, I love me that too. name. Judy and Tracy raised this beautiful little family together in Minneapolis until about 2000. And in 2000 was when the couple broke up. Mm. But it seems like, just from everything that I was reading and kind of was able to find, Judy was really, really close to Tracy's family. She was really close to his family in Omaha and kind of stayed pretty connected to them. Um, And actually, shortly after they broke up was when Judy kind of, like I said, started looking for a fresh start. I don't know kind of what led to the breakup between her and Tracy or kind of what their life was like at that Mm. point. But it seemed like her time in Minnesota, she felt like had kind of come to an end. So she was just kind of talking actually to Tracy's cousin, Rochelle. And Rochelle was basically like, Judy, you're my family. Like, don't really care. (laughs) Why don't you come down here? Why don't you kind of... You know, bring the kids, whatever. I love that. Yeah. And so Judy's like, you know what? Apparently Omaha is like one of the top 10 places to raise a family in the United States. Hmm. 
it seems in a lot of ways pretty comparable to like Minneapolis and in a lot of other kind of Midwestern big cities. Um, but is known for being affordable, comfortable, seems like a pretty chill place to live. Yeah. And that's kind of what Judy had wanted. So she took Rochelle up on her offer. At the time, Tracy was working as a nursing assistant and he decided to stay back in Minneapolis. But from everything that I read, they kind of stayed on good terms and, and really did kind of care about what was best for the mm-hmm. kids. It seemed like Starsha, their oldest daughter, again, kind of doing the math, was either finishing high school or into adulthood at this Mm -hmm. point. So she kind of stayed back in Minneapolis and didn't move fully. A lot like her dad did, kind of lived halfway in each city. So Rochelle offers to let Judy and her kids, Tara and Tramar, stay with her while Judy gets on her feet. The three of them move into Rochelle's house. Starsha stays back, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. doing what she doing can, kind thing. of visiting yeah. family. Doing her own thing. Like Being I said, a I young she's adult. the oldest. Yeah. We're going to follow more Judy, Tremar, and Latara. So I wanted to give you a little bit more information about them. <sighs> if I can breathe and talk at mm. the same time, that'd be great. Difficult task. Allergies are awful this year, dude. It's really taken me back to like this time last year when (laughs) so many of our recordings were just like us talking between sniffles. (laughs) So we're going out. So we're going to follow those three. And I wanted to give you a little bit more information about the kids here. So Latara, at the time of the move, at the time they went to Omaha, she was 13. She was described by everybody as ambitious, vibrant, and, quote, whip smart. She was apparently learning Korean, and she liked to teach her dad all the words that she was learning. Her dad thought it was, like, the cutest thing in the entire world. (laughs) She apparently wanted to become both a model and a ministry worker. Those were her two goals in life. Um, She was gorgeous. She loved to perform. She could command an audience from what everybody was saying. So, hey, why not both? Why not be a model and a ministry worker? get it, girl. (laughs) She seemed to be caring and pretty mature for her Mm 13-year-old self. From what I saw, I think myself at 13 was not the most mature. (laughs) Probably never would have considered being a ministry worker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, Trey Marr was seven. Um, He was described by his father as, quote, curious and ever-smiling. And oh my god, the pictures of these two. Tremar is adorable. Yeah. Like, smiling in every single picture, like, ear to ear. So freaking cute. Aww. He was bright. He loved to help his classmates. His teachers would said he was constantly volunteering to help everybody with our schoolwork and help them understand Aww. things and learn. So what a cutie butt. Gosh, he is cute. Did you just yeah. Google him? He is adorable. He looks like um, uh, Taj Mari from Smart Guy. Oh my god, he yeah, does. He's so <laughs> I feel like that whole description just fits. Yeah, him. it seems to. It's really cute. Uh, what a sweetie. And his parents would apparently debate that it, whether or not he was going to become a doctor or a scientist because he just had a super scientific mind. Yeah. At the time, so Tracy was working, Tracy, their dad, was working as a nursing assistant, but he was also studying to be a motorcycle and ATV repairman. So Tremar would get so excited and talk to his dad about all these plans that they were going to have, that they were going to go 
build and ride these dune buggies together and they were going to go on these vacations and build dune buggies Aww. and all of this and i was like that's, so that's really sweet <laughs> so again i just like to give a little bit of information about who these kids yeah. were and really that is kind of the most information that i was able to find about the two of them so those two little cuties and and judy move into rochelle's home for a bit rochelle is featured pretty strongly in the um investigation discovery episode and she really seemed like yeah like this is my family and i just wanted them to be there she's like i loved when they were there there was only really one rule that rochelle set down for judy in the house and that was no men in the Mm -hmm. home she was like we are two women living with two young kids and i just want you to be extra careful which i think is i would make the same rule to be honest yeah (laughs) yeah So after Judy moved down, moved in with Rochelle, she got a job. She was making friends. She was really kind of doing what she hoped to do. Um, She was really getting on her feet, finding the stability, kind of like hitting her stride. Um, Rochelle and Judy only kind of had like one little headbutting incident um, while she was living there. And it was, again, just about that one single rule. Judy was starting to date, like I I think most people kind of when they're in a She's newly single. She's in a new place. She's dating around. Apparently nothing serious, but Rochelle came home one day and Judy was in the house with a man that Rochelle did not know. She got angry, frustrated. Again, I have one rule, dude, follow it. Insisted that he leave immediately. And apparently the man left quickly without even a glance at Rochelle. Just staring at the ground. Nothing. So they kind of talked it over, apologies all around, nothing kind of big or serious. So things go on for a while. They're living together. The kids seem to be thriving at their new school. Judy seems to be thriving at her new job. Eventually to the point that Judy saves up enough money to get a little apartment for the family. Mm -hmm. So the time had come to kind of move out of the home. Rochelle seemed a little heartbroken, honestly. Yeah, I can imagine. Because you, you get close yeah. to people. You, you know? get close to people. Yeah, exactly. They lived there. It seemed like for almost a year, kind of all together as a family. Living with kids is really fun. It's exhausting, but it's really fun. I'm just gonna trust you on that one. <laughs> I enjoy it. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Happy I mean, I, I'm glad that I do because I'm stuck with the little <laughs> rugrats. Uh, so judy gets this little apartment on the outskirts of omaha i kind of google maps it it's a pretty cute little area very very much like literally on the edge of town Mm. um kind of on the edge of a residential community right near like some train tracks um kind of butting up against like an industrial area Okay, I was going to ask, I've never been to Omaha, so I don't know if it's like um, suburban sprawl or if like once you're not in Omaha, you're kind of done with. It reminds me a lot. It's not so it's not so much as like Detroit where it's like urban and then suburban, like Mm -hmm. where there's that kind of harsh divide. Yeah, but it has I looking around, it had kind of like Clevelandy vibes. Where yeah, like, it looks like I yeah, it looks a lot like Cleveland. Where like it I kind see. of like slowly heads into like the industrial area. Mm-hmm. But and then, then you hit like the industrial park and then you're like, oh hi farms. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So okay. her the apartment that she got was kind of like right on the edges of that industrial era. So like 
one block away you would have like trains and kind of more like industry and then another block away you would have like parks and schools and other little stuff got it okay so honestly it looked very much like a a lot of the working class neighborhoods that i see around sure yeah yeah legit cute area cute apartments that sort of thing mm-hmm. so Rochelle, again, said she was sad to see them go, but happy because, like, this meant that Judy was kind of achieving her dreams. She was doing the damn thing. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Now, from here on out is where things get murky. For reasons that are going to become clear eventually, but I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. So just go on this ride with me. I'm here for it. Take me for a ride, baby. All right. Judy, Latara, and Tremar are living in Omaha. Latara and Tremar are in school. Judy's working, dating, doing her thing. And we are in late 2000. We're, so we're going to plop us down on November 12th, 2000. Okay. Around 8.15 a.m., police receive a call from a citizen walking along those railroad tracks behind the apartment complex. Oh, God. Yeah. You know this isn't going to go well. Yeah. Nothing good starts that way. No. Nothing good starts at railroad tracks at 8.15 in a call to the police. No. No. A concerned citizen called saying that he had heard moaning coming from the railroad tracks. And then upon a very quick look, he saw a body in a giant pool of blood. Oh my god. Police arrive at the scene to find a woman beaten, bloody, and left for dead, with her skull literally bashed into the metal railings of the train tracks. Oh, my gosh. The woman was beaten and battered, but she was still conscious and still alive. Now, I want you to actually understand, like, her brain was exposed. Oh, my God. From everything that I was seeing. Like, it was bad. While they're waiting for the ambulance to arrive, they find Judy's ID close to her body, and they're able to identify her. Since she's still conscious, while they're kind of rushing her into the ambulance, the police ask her if she knows who did this. She is able to get out the name Lee before eventually passing out. Huh. Okay. She's asked, did you know this person? She says, yes. She's immediately taken to the hospital, but because of the severity of her head wound, she is put into a medically induced coma. Oh my gosh. Police are able to find a decent amount of evidence at the scene. They find a cigarette butt that was very close to Judy's body. And they find a bloody footprint in the snow. So this is November in Nebraska. It was cold, bitter, kind of that icy, gross snow where it's like less than two inches, but Mm. just enough to leave a footprint. Yeah. 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 So while they're collecting evidence... Judy is at the hospital. Police grab her ID and are able to identify her next of kin. The police call her mother in Minneapolis and inform them of what's going on. And obviously, as soon as Judy's mother gets the call, her first question is, what about the the kids? kids? Yeah, because the police obviously don't know that she's a mom. Nope. And so (laughs) the police say, shit. Yes, I'm sure they said... Many, many, many shits. Many, many, many shits. I'm certain of it. As soon as the mother is like, okay, where's my grandbabies? Mm, That is absolutely horrifying. I'm just like, I'm really living in this story right now, and it's just really horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. 
so they get the address. I'm assuming, honestly, that it it took me two years to update my the address on my license. I'm okay. assuming that she didn't have an updated address on her license. I mean, my license has my ex-husband's address on it. And <laughs> that was three addresses ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. And they had just moved into these. I don't know how long they were in this apartment. It doesn't seem. It was obviously less than a year. Mm. So investigators get Judy's address from her mother and the police head out there immediately. And then what I assume is a phone tree (laughs) kind of starts happening through the family. Judy's mother calls Tracy, the kid's father. Tracy calls Rochelle, um, his cousin, and basically says, Rochelle, you need to get to the house, check on the kids, get them right now, get them safe. Police arrive to the house first before Rochelle. Expecting, honestly, I think... In reading the or watching the interviews with the police, they really genuinely just expected to find some scared, confused, and probably hungry kids. Yeah. I mean, that's all you would expect. Yeah. By the time Rochelle gets there, though, the scene has already been taped off. No one's releasing any information. Rochelle is standing outside, screaming, crying. She thought that the kids had been taken into custody. So she is just like yelling at police, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? As she's getting there while they're kind of putting up the tape. What police found when they investigated the house was a lot worse than two scared kids. As they walk into the house, they start to search. They find nothing in the living room. They first walk into Latara's room where they find her deceased, naked from the waist down and covered in blood. Oh, God. In the room, they would also find a bloody towel and a used condom. Ah. They then move down the hallway into the bathroom, where they find Tremar, also naked from the waist down, in the bathtub dead. Oh, my God. The scene was described to be absolutely terrifying and depraved, as court records would describe it. Yeah, well, no Later autopsies would reveal that Latara was sexually assaulted and both children died of manual strangulation. Jeez. Which means that whoever did this had to strangle these children with their Close bare up. hands for up to four minutes. Wow. I should say at least four minutes, not up to, at least four minutes to die by strangulation. Yeah, and I think what... Um... What is easy to forget about manual strangulation is how close you have to be to another person to do that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have, if you think about like your arm strength, you don't have leverage from the full, you know, your full wingspan. So to really yes. have that leverage, you have to have your elbows like really good and bent. And so like for me to do that, I would say this is probably six inches mm-hmm. from my face. Yeah. Right? So you're talking like probably six to eight inches Yeah. from your face. It's so... It's so horrifyingly intimate. It's so close up. And you would have had to have been like so close to those kids to keep control of them. Because like a 7 and a 13 year old aren't strong, but they are, they're scrappy. Yeah. And like wiry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so police were able to get the DNA from the condom and the towel and that matched the DNA that was left on the cigarette at the scene of Judy's attack. Okay. So we know that this is one person who did both attacks. So that DNA was obviously run through CODIS. Good job. Question. But, yes. 
So um, Latara was sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Was Tremar as well? Because he Tremar. was found. Tremar was not sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Yes. They found him naked from the waist down. Um, my guess, and obviously we don't have any evidence to this, but um, my guess is that that was just more for humiliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It usually yeah. is. Yeah. But yeah, only Latara was found to be sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Judy? no interesting okay at least not in the records that i saw Mm. so that dna that they found at the scene at both scenes was run through codas but no matches come came through so if we do like a little inventory of what we have right now Mm -hmm. we've got dna we've got a footprint and we've got a name lee Mm -hmm. we don't know if that is a first middle or last name right and it could be any of those. That's one of those ones. It's one of those tricky ones. Yeah. I have three first names. So I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but we have literally nothing else other than those three pieces of evidence. Yeah. We have no other witnesses. We have no security footage. We have nothing coming in or out of the apartment. No records of any plans that Judy had or the family had that night. Nothing. And this is, like, the hard part about kind of, like, trying to start fresh and start new in, like, a new town is, like... You don't have connections. You don't have connections. You don't have people that check on you. You don't have, Mm -hmm. like, your regular Starbucks or places like that that you go to. Yeah. Um, We don't even really know how long, like, when did this all happen? It had to be relatively soon because she was still alive. And by the sound of that scene, yeah. She would have died at that scene if... If she had been out there for any real amount of time mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. So we're probably talking, I mean, I'm not a medical examiner, but based on the sound of those injuries, I would think less than two hours easily. Yeah. And with that kind of snow too, because often like that kind of snow, especially as like the morning hours start to go on. It just turns to ice. It turns to slush or ice. Yeah. And you're not going to have that nice footprint either. So mm-hmm. As a seasoned Midwesterner, <laughs> my guess <laughs> Who knows our snow patterns. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, I just logic would tell because there was a um, one of the victims in the Weepy Voice Killer case mm-hmm. uh, was found in that condition as well with like exposed brain matter. That that first um, Karen Potek, that first and she lived too. Survived. Didn't she? she did, and she was out there for um, less than an hour because he had called when he was done. Yeah, yeah. So Oof. just based on that, like, yeah, yeah. Oof. But yeah, so we don't know, again, how long she was out there, when she left the house, how long the kids were there, if the kids were attacked first or if she was attacked first. Nothing. Um, can you remind me of the date? November 12th was when the call came in to the police. November 12th, 2000. 2000. Are you looking up what day of the week it was? I just want to know if it was a school day. No, it was a yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Okay. So at the time of the discovery of the scene, we don't know what happened before. We don't know what happened after. And because the only witness to this crime is now in a fucking coma. Yeah. Police start their investigation by combing through Judy's contacts. So it's 2000. We have like baby social media. Mm -hmm. We have like MySpace and things like that. Do we ever even have MySpace in 2000? Oh, gosh. I had a dead journal. Yeah, I don't think that Judy had a dead journal. <laughs> Probably not. She wasn't a 12-year-old emo kid like I was. <laughs> so. 
But we're looking for her, you know, phone contacts, that sort of thing. Like, okay, where did she work? Who did she know at work? Was she scheduled that day? That sort of thing. Okay, let's talk to her kids' teachers. Did mom have any boyfriends? Did Yeah. So police are able to find one person through all of their searching named Lee and bring him in for questioning. He is cooperative until they ask for a DNA sample and then he backs down and they didn't have enough for a warrant for DNA. So Mm. basically once he backs down, they lose their only lead. Yeah, yeah. So the case risked getting really cold despite like everything being there yeah again like when we talk about like all these different cases and unsolved cases it's like oh if we just had dna if we just had this that the other thing we have that but we don't have anyone to connect it to Mm -hmm. so the police basically like at this point are in a waiting game waiting for judy to come out of the coma yeah and they wait two months before judy is finally healthy enough to come out of the coma Wow. Now, when Judy finally wakes from the coma, she is obviously terrified, confused. She has no idea where she is, what happened to her, why, anything like that. Yeah. And for the first few days, doctors can't tell her anything. Oh, my God. The doctors had made the medical decision that her health was in too fragile of a state to handle the stress of hearing about her children. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and I completely understand it from a medical perspective. Mm -hmm. She had massive brain damage to her system that just, there's no way that her system could handle hearing about that and be able to manage the effects of a panic attack, a trauma, of grief. Like, you could literally kind of trigger a heart attack or an aneurysm or anything like that based on her medical state. Yeah, easily. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what Judy is going through, let alone what her medical team is going through. Yeah. Because her medical team knows. They know everything and they, and they're probably being asked if she's vocal too. Mm -hmm. And what do they have to say? Like, oh, we're not sure, Judy, like... It's we not just really need our place to, to know that or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Just like, okay, Judy, like, we just need you to rest. We just need you to focus on getting better. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Judy is like, why am I here and where are my kids? Yeah. So her medical team can't tell her anything. Rochelle is kind of the only local family that she has who also couldn't say anything. The kid's oh father couldn't say anything. Her mother couldn't say anything to her. And here she is, oh my gosh, probably wondering, like, why aren't my kids at my bedside right now? Yep, yep. And even if that was only, because I don't have an exact date, like, nothing I found gave it exact dates for any of this stuff. Mm. Um, But even if it was just for a couple of days, I want to say it was probably closer to a week um, that that she was able to come out of the coma and kind of, like, build up her strength enough that the doctors were able to tell her. Oh, gosh. I'm guessing it was close to a week. But finally, the doctors told her, like, okay, she's strong enough to tell her. I don't want to know who had to be the fucking one to tell her all of this shit. My gosh. I don't. I can't even imagine. Like, there's no way to break that news to somebody. Like, oh, you were attacked. We have no idea by who. You said their name was Lee, and then they killed your kids brutally. 
And then here's the other thing. She's destroyed. She's angry. She's confused. She also now has severe retrograde amnesia. Oh, my God. <laughs> this poor woman. I just can't even begin to. Yeah. I can't begin to imagine. Yeah. I so, really can't. Just a little background on retrograde amnesia because it's relatively rare. Like, it's not super common. With head injuries like this, it actually is more common, obviously. Yeah. It's basically, it's a form of memory loss that it can, can occur from severe head injury, seizures, severe illnesses, strokes, things like that. Anything that has a massive impact on the hippocampus and or the temporal lobes of the brain, which are the side, side boys. Um, side boys. Side boys. They're all side boys. Yeah, front boy, top boy, back boy, and side boy. There you go. I like it. I like it. Um, but yeah, anything that has a major impact on the hippocampus or the temporal lobes, which are the most significant brain regions associated with memory, mm. specifically with autobiographical memory, so memory about things that happened to you. Yeah, yeah. Things that you did are associated with damage to the medial temporal lobe specifically. Mm. And Judy's head injury, um, her head was bashed into the train tracks doing severe, seemingly global damage, uh, but most assuredly to the temporal lobes. Because what it seems like was kind of smashed, grabbed her head and smashed it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't look at any pictures. (sighs) Are there pictures of her crime scene that are Uh, available? In the investigation discovery episode there are pictures of the crime scene after they moved her body oh yeah but with retrograde amnesia it affects memories from before the event Mm. oh okay generally the memories closest to the event that caused the amnesia without affecting distant memories but depending on the severity that's kind of how far back those memories are going to go Got it. Okay. This is also referred to as temporally graded. So from the time of the injury backward. Got it. And kind of from what's described from her presentation, it sounds like just to get extra nerdy on you, focal retrograde amnesia. So loss of memory just surrounding these specific events. Mm -hmm. Um, She still remembered her kids. She still remembered where she lived, that sort of thing. Got it. There's other types of amnesia that can impact more distal memories, procedural memories, formation of new memories. Those ones are a lot more rare. Gotcha. But I like to provide that because I do think that when a lot of people hear amnesia, they think like, oh, that's a convenient reason. Right. Yeah. And you think of that like kind of the Hollywood version, right? Where it's like this complete and total loss of like your entire identity. And yeah. It's typically a lot more focal and a lot more kind of focused than that. But amnesia is very very well documented so Mm. if anybody says it's not a thing it's no it's one of the one of the oldest documented kind of neurological events definitely a thing yeah i think in true crime i can understand why true crimers can feel like oh well that's just convenient yeah but it's really distressing basically it's it's like a severe trauma and you get to impact the consequence of the trauma, but you have no recall of what caused it. Right. But this was, again, also one of the reasons why doctors didn't want to tell her about it so soon, because severe emotional distress and cardiac arrest can further the damage and impact the eventual memory recovery. Mm. Because 
most of the time, at least some of your memory will come back. Yeah. It just comes with a lot of rehabilitation, a lot of time, and a lot, a lot of rest. Think about, for anyone that's had a concussion, a lot of times they'll put you on brain rest. Mm-hmm. Kind of so that your brain can recover and rebuild itself. Yeah, I've had a lot of student athletes on brain rest. And um, the first time I had like a kid come to me and say that they were on brain rest, I was like, yeah, you just don't want to write your essay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out that... It is definitely a real thing. Oh, no. And they hate it eventually. They hate because, like, you're not allowed to watch TV for, like, more than, depending on, like, the treatment plan, 20 to 30 minutes at a time. You're not allowed to read for too long. So, like, there's nothing you can do. You're not allowed to. It's so boring. It's so so boring. Boring. I had one. The doctor told them that they basically just can't. You cannot play video games. Like, Mm. it is too cognitively demanding. (laughs) So yeah, brain rest is actually really boring. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, I mean, I kind of want it right now, but uh, anyway, yeah. back to Judy. We're taking a lot of side roads. We are. Today. Cut all of them. Um, we don't. Again, doctors don't want to, didn't want to tell her because any cardiac event, any panic event can impact her recovery. They basically, after they eventually do tell her, you know, obviously she wants to help the investigators. She wants to do all of this work. But her recovery team is basically like, listen, all you can do is yeah. rest. All you can do is focus on, like, the actual physical and cognitive recovery. The memories will come back as they come back. You can't rush it. And from what I understand, obviously there were the cognitive effects of the memory loss It seems like she had a lot of kind of global cognitive impacts from attention, memory, speech, physical impacts that she is still to this day. This happened in 2000. Um, She was awakened from the coma in 2001, but she's still recovering and probably will be her entire life. So she's like, okay, I'm just going to, I guess all I can do is like listen to what they're telling me to do. The investigation team is doing whatever they can with the little information they have to go on. But, like, weeks go by, months go by. Finally, those little bits and pieces of memory do start to come together for Judy. And the memories that are coming together are, they're rough. They're not memories that she is proud of. As she's thinking about the name Lee... She's racking her brain. Who the hell is Lee? She really just didn't even have that left. It finally comes to her, though. A few months prior to the murder, Judy had met a man who went by the name Lee. They had become friends. They had dated very casually. And Lee was not a great influence on her. Something that it would seem she hid from other people. While Judy was trying to do her best to get a fresh start and take care of herself, Lee dangled a bit of a temptation in front of her. Drugs. Not quite, even. So, Judy, remember, is now a single mom, trying to take care of her two kids, starting a new life. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing struggling with money. Prostitution? Nope. Oh my gosh. Lee says he knew of a car dealership that had a lot of cash on hand. Oh, okay. 
He told Judy that him and his friend had planned to rob the dealership. And if she was willing to be the one to be the getaway driver, they would split the cash with her. Interesting. Now, when you mention drugs, prostitution, there's no evidence of any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, again, we don't know. She doesn't even know. Yeah. What was going on at this period in her life. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some kind of like other, you know, things that she was maybe less than proud of. Mm -hmm. Because when Judy is talking about this, even in the documentary, she seems completely embarrassed by it. Oh, God, poor Judy. She really should not and cannot blame herself for this stuff. I mean, my God. Yeah. So Lee dangles this temptation of telling her this is easy money. This is easy cash. All you got to do is just park here, wait, and drive away. It's easy. Yeah. And after some reluctance, she does end up agreeing to do it. Now, apparently things didn't go super smoothly. There's some more in-depth pieces on the Investigation Discovery documentary. Um, it's called The Only Witness, by the way, if you want to, like, Google it. Mm. Just search, like, ID, The Only Witness. I will watch it tomorrow. Um, and they describe that this, the robbery kind of turned into a little bit of a mess. They got away, but, like, just barely. And Judy ended up getting less money than it seems like she had planned on getting. Ah. Now, to her credit, even though she seems very embarrassed by this, she knows, I just took part in a fucking crime. She goes and tells the police everything that she remembers. She shares all the events with the investigation team. She says, Lee was definitely somebody that I dated. It was definitely the person involved in this robbery. But that's still all I know. She says, the more stuff comes to me, the more I'm going to tell you. But this is what I know now. Police were able to take that information and match it to a series of robberies. Hmm. Where they found the third guy actually was finally arrested. Interesting. So that extra guy in the car, not Lee, but the other guy in the car, was arrested for a robbery and was serving time. Hmm. So they get the third guy, question him about the robbery, and he's able to get a name. Arthur Lee Gales. Okay. Goes by Lee. Mm. This is a different Lee than the original one. I was just about to ask, is this the same Lee from the phone? It's not. I was not, not expecting the, that at all. Not the one that they originally investigated that didn't want to give his DNA. Wow. Interesting. So she gets the name Arthur Lee Gales. Now, Judy's still recovering still recovering from the trauma she experienced and is being re-traumatized by her own fucking memories as they're coming back up. I know, I know. Um, She's able to tell the police, okay, I do remember I had a date with Gales, with Arthur Lee Gales, on November 11th, the day before she was discovered. The Saturday? Yep, that Saturday before. She says, I know that we left together. We left the kids at the apartment. But that's okay. That's what I got. Okay. So police are like, all right, we got this name. They obviously do their due diligence and look up Gales. Turns out Gales has a history. Mm. Several years prior, Arthur Lee Gales had been arrested and served time for robbery and rape in Florida. Wow. Now, luckily... 
Again, this is months after the murder and the attack. He's still in Omaha. They're able to bring him in and get a DNA match. Based on the evidence they have from Judy's statement, they're able to get a warrant for his DNA. It matches directly to the crime scene, directly to what he left at Judy's crime scene, what he left um, at the attack from Latara. He is quickly arrested and charged with the murders of Latara and Tremar and the attempted murder of Judy Chandler. Wow. So, honestly, the trial is pretty much a fucking slam dunk case yeah, at this point. Yeah, of course now, it is. police did basically waive any um, charges against Judy for the robbery. I would hope so. Yeah. By this time, they have Judy's testimony that... Gales had been in the house. He was the last person that she recalls seeing leaving the home. They had the, the third burglar's testimony from the uh, car dealership robbery. They had the DNA, um, the matching shoe print. Basically a fucking slam dunk case. Yeah, good. Prosecution had argued that the murders were deliberate and premeditated. Basically their theory was that Gales had... Beat Judy in a rage, likely stemming from a fight between the two of them, and then returned to the apartment to kill the children so that they couldn't connect him to their mother's murder. Hmm. The sexual assault in Latara, they said, was simple malice and opportunity. And Gail's defense? You want to take his guess? Insanity? No, he gave us the shaggy defense. Oh, did he really? Yeah. One me. Wow. That was that was the entirety of his defense. What? It wasn't me. How do you explain your DNA, buddy? One me. Wow. He maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial, but did not testify or offer any alternative theories as to who committed the crimes. Wow. Not even, like, attempting anything. That's so dumb. <laughs> I mean, it is a fucking slam dunk case, so I'm like, well, what are you going to argue? Yeah, I mean, you plea out. Like, that's the thing that you do, is you plea out. And I wonder if they offered him something. If they offered him, he didn't take it. Yeah. Because, okay, I also love this about Nebraska. Fucking, they have a quick-ass justice system. Mm. November it is 6th. swift there, isn't it? Because it was for um, Aubrey Trail and Bailey Boswell as well in the mm. um, Sydney Lift case, right? It was so yeah. fast. So fast. So November 6th, 2001, just short of a year after the murder of Latara and Tremar, the 36-year-old Arthur Lee Gales is found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. So, yeah, a year. They put all of that together. I'm shocked. Um, now, when you say, like, wondering, like, if they offered him a deal or if he was going to plead to anything... Apparently not. Like, and I don't understand, like, if he just... Most people, when they're facing that kind of a trial, will just plead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the way that the sentencing comes down on this is that kind of basically... So they go through the trial. They present all the evidence to the case. They come back with a guilty or not guilty verdict. Mm -hmm. Um, He was guilty on both counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. And then they go back during the sentencing and kind of lift the aggravating and mitigating factors. Exactly, yeah. 
So for Gales, the aggravating factors, basically which take into account kind of choosing a sentence, whether he would get a worse one or an easier one, um, the aggravating factors include that this attack, specifically the attack on Latara and the sexual abuse, was basically described as heinous, atrocious, cruel, and manifested exceptional depravity by ordinary standards of morality and intelligence. That's accurate. Damn. Yeah. And because that crime was committed to cover up another crime, the attempted murder of Judy, in addition to his past convictions, the prosecution argued for the death penalty. There were very few mitigating factors offered. Um, Again, Gales basically didn't defend himself at all. Yeah. They said, oh, he has a family and he has children. By the way, he had children of his own. Did he really? Yeah, everybody was really shocked when they found out that he had children of his own. But because of the aggravating factors and kind of the lack of mitigating factors, Judge handed down a sentence of death plus 50. Death plus 50. Okay. So your like, we're going to keep your body. Years? Yeah. We're going to keep your fucking body. <laughs> Now, Judy Chandler was glad to hear this verdict. She said shortly after this in a newspaper interview, she said, now my children can rest. Justice has been served. Um, now, I think this is interesting. I just always think people's reactions to the death penalty are interesting. So Judy was obviously very angry, and she said, no, justice has been served. This is what should have happened. Yeah, yeah. Tracy Newman, their father, said, he said the death penalty was, quote, just one more pain to other families and my family. I wanted him to live out his life like I have to live mine out. Let him know what he did every single day. We don't know much about Gail's life or why he did this. Mm. Um, And I think that that's kind of what is really unsatisfying about all of this. It's one thing to be a violent asshole. Yeah. And to, like, beat your girlfriend. But then, like, apropos of nothing, go and brutally strangle children with your bare hands. And to strip them down and to have assaulted one of them. The thing that, like, and the, when the shaggy defense comes in, it's also really frustrating because, like, you know, with with a thorough investigation, you can put together you know a lot of how a crime went down but you can't get Mm -hmm. everything you can't get every detail and i'm really curious about like just the steps involved in doing what he did right like he Mm -hmm. where did he beat judy did he so he he must have if he was worried about the kids seeing it and implicating him he must have beaten her in the apartment and then somehow the two end up outside at the railroad tracks and then he goes back Mm-hmm. To do this to the kids? See, and that's... And I guess, again, this is, like, kind of we're left to put the pieces together in our own mind, mm-hmm. right? So, in my mind, it was like, okay, maybe he was at the apartment and the kids knew him mm-hmm. as, like, mom's boyfriend or mom's friend or whatever. And they left together because the attack happened at the railroad tracks. Like, it's described that he beat her her skull into the tracks. Right, right, right. But I wonder, like, if an altercation started in the apartment is my point. Like, yeah, did he yeah. punch her, hit her, mm-hmm. slap her, you know, something like that? Or were they in some kind of, like, yelling match? And then she's like, hey, let's just take this 
outside so the kids don't yeah, have to like, hear it or something like that. Yeah, because even like the timeline that we kind of like bantered about, she couldn't have been left there for very long, yeah. given her injuries. I mean, medical miracles do happen and maybe conceivably maybe she was out there for five hours or six hours but i also want to know like if there and you probably would have had to have read like read an emmy's report about it but like Mm -hmm. the bodies of the children should have been able to be assessed in some reasonable degree for a time of death especially latara yeah and i don't know I'm sure there's there's more there's more information out there that I could not find. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure if I dug through and made more like records requests, I could have gotten them. <laughs> um, but again, Nebraska's kind of weird. Nebraska's um, cagey. Move really fast, but they keep their information really fa- cagey. Yeah. They keep a little close to the chest. They do. They um, do. Things happen in those cornfields. And like I read. I read the court documents and I read his appeal. So he would go on to appeal this Mm -hmm. actually successfully. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we're not totally done yet. Um, so do you remember way back when we covered Sydney Lou, if you had mentioned this? Yeah. And we talked about Aubrey trail sentencing and how he got sentenced to death by a panel of three judges. Mm So that case is not too far after this one. And this is actually the case that kind of changed it. Oh, really? Yes. So Gales would appeal his conviction. Everybody appeals their fucking death sentence. Yeah, yeah. You You have to. You have to. to Yeah. You got nothing better to do. And like people will appeal these convictions on literally any grounds like incompetent defense is like the number one like oh my my attorneys were incompetent Mm -hmm. but while he's doing this there's another case actually going through the u.s supreme court uh ring versus arizona so i'm just gonna quote from deathpenaltyinfo.org's write-up of the key takeaway from the 2002 ring versus arizona decision okay so this is scotus In a 7-2 decision in the case of Ring v. Arizona, the U.S. Supreme Court held that a defendant has the right to have a jury, rather than a judge, decide on the existence of an aggravating factor that makes the defendant eligible for the death penalty. The court based its judgment on the broader constitutional principle that the Sixth Amendment right to a trial by jury encompasses the right to a jury, finding all of the facts that are necessary to put a defendant to to death. In its decision, the court held that Arizona's sentencing statute, under which the judge determined the presence or absence of aggravating factors necessary to make a defendant eligible for the death penalty, violated the Sixth Amendment guarantee. So what this basically means is, so I had mentioned they go through the jury trial to decide guilty or innocent, and then the judge weighs in on the aggravating and mitigating factors. Basically, Ring versus Arizona says no, yeah. not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically means that in Gail's case, a judge had decided that he would get the death plus 50 sentence. Mm-hmm. And Nebraska now had to retry and resentence him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, this sounds, I feel like I'm just like digging for things in this case. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this sounds more dramatic than it ended up being. Like, I really think, like, Gales probably thought he had a fucking, like, swoosh in this one. But it literally ended up just being the same fucking trial because none of the facts were contested. Right, right, right. Like, none of the evidence was contested. He still didn't testify in his defense. He still pulled the shaggy defense. They just had to play it all out again. But this time, a jury of his peers evaluating the same aggravating and mitigating factors once again came to offer the decision of a death penalty. So they're like, yeah, still guilty. Still deserves to die. You know, I mean, obviously it didn't do anything for him but buy him time. Uh-huh. And I think Nebraska is one of those states that executes pretty quickly. So anything you can do to to buy your time out is, is probably a good thing. But And certainly not that yeah. he meant this to be like an altruistic move at all. But uh, as a piece of case law, it's fantastic, right? Like it makes perfect sense. And it it adds a nuance to due process that's really, really, really important. I think it is really important because obviously we know we can have biased judges and we can have biased juries. And I actually think the way that Nebraska goes about this is interesting. And of the states that have the death penalty, I feel like this is one of the more reasonable ways to go about it. Mm-hmm. That a jury has to hand down the verdict of a death penalty. Mm-hmm. And then it moves forward to a three-judge panel Mm -hmm. that is basically the final word that says, yes, this can go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's really compelling because it never comes down to, you know, quote-unquote one man's opinion, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, at this point you have convinced in the first trial 12 jurors and a judge Mm -hmm. and now three additional judges. Right, yeah. So you get, I mean, you've convinced a jury of your peers and then it's corroborated by experts, right? It's kind mm-hmm, of the other way to mm-hmm. look at that. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I kind of like thinking about it that way. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Um, I love law. Yeah. I know. I need go a Patreon to fund me to go to law school because I've been reflecting a lot about how stupid it is that everyone's like life path is set by a fucking career choice they made for a college major when they were like a literal child. And now here I am in my mid-30s, like, knowing that I would be better applied to a couple of other different career fields that are now impossible for me to get into. Girl. Yeah. We will talk offline. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, We have been ranting about this for many, many, many. uh, I'm just going to let you finish. I won't cut you off. Okay, go ahead. So, although he was sentenced to death, and Nebraska typically is pretty quick, again, there's still a million appeals, mm-hmm. Gales would spend 21 years on death row, and in April of 2022, so just two months ago, Arthur Lee Gales died of natural causes while on death row in Tecumseh State Correctional Institute. Oh, the audacity. The audacity, and that's what Judy said, too. Was it really? <laughs> I mean... Close enough. It's a paraphrase. It's to paraphrase. She was upset. She said she wanted to see him fry. Mm. That was a quote. So, quote, see him fry. Wow. Yeah. The audacity of dying of natural causes. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's kind of, like, why, how, like, I came across this case Mm. was it was in the newspapers after he died. Mm. Um, 
you know, gotcha. he was sentenced to death twice, and that was a little bit precedent setting. And I think yeah. that Nebraska did, I think, kind of put in an interesting way of going about this. Yeah, really. Way of going about death penalty. So Arthur Lee Gales has died, still maintaining his innocence yeah. without offering any alternatives. Yeah. We know better, obviously. So Judy continues to cope with the effects of her attack that night, like I said, both physical and psychological. Um, She's experienced motor and cognitive effects, which she continues to receive rehabilitation for. She is on disability. She also gets treatment for the trauma that obviously she experienced that night and ongoing constantly after losing her kids. She says many, many times that she regrets ever meeting Gales, ever getting into his car, ever having anything to do with him. I mean, Jesus. I feel like that's one of those, like, I made a stupid decision. I was in a stupid relationship, and you never think anything could go this wrong. No, it's the heaviest weight in the world for someone to possibly bear, and my heart just really breaks for her. And for, especially for a woman who, like, really genuinely just kept saying, I just want something better. I just want something better. Mm -hmm. I just want something better. You know? Yeah. I mean, I haven't been in that extreme of a situation, obviously, but I've certainly been a single mom. And I've been a single mom that really needed money. Mm-hmm. And you do consider things that you wouldn't consider in a normal situation, you know? And yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know how anyone could really blame her for considering what she did you know i mean doing it is another thing i guess but you can't blame her for considering it no and clearly she's not in any way shape or form at fault for what happened to those babies no god no it's terrible it really fucking is because it doesn't it doesn't seem like she ever did anything to involve them in anything or do anything but to try to keep them safe Mm -hmm. and these kids were I mean, they were just happy kids. They were just fucking living their life. I mean, they were 13 and 7. And I think about, like, what are just, like, fun ages to be? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 13 is hard, but 7 is... That's a fun age. God. Those kids... uh, We'll obviously post the pictures on the socials, but these kids were so... They are darling kids. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I just... I wanted to talk about this case, because it was one that, like, I I hadn't seen covered much at all. Like I said, I tried to look it up on YouTube, look it up on, you know, podcasts, and I didn't find anything. Yeah. Um, I want it to be told, even if it's it's a little jumbled of a story to tell because of the way that things played out. Yeah, and obviously some of the nitty-gritty, like, hour-by-hour details are missing. But, yeah, I mean, these are people whose stories deserve to be told. And, yeah. um two kids that really deserve to be remembered in you know a way that gives them tribute and yeah yeah so sorry if it was a little bit of a clunky narrative but like i did my best yeah and it's yeah i think you did fine and i just feel like yeah i just would really you know as usual i know it's my spiel but i i believe <laughs> it in my heart i really do that um i would really compel people to just take some time and space to think about those kids and in whatever way you choose to connect with the cosmos if you do to 
to do so to spare a thought for for those kids and for judy and for judy and for their dad and for everybody that loved those kids yeah 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 exactly (sighs) so shall we pivot into next episode yeah so next episode we will be attending to a listener suggestion sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was not listening to dr dre earlier today i mean if you weren't then you fucked up because you really should have been um, all right anyway <laughs> yeah so we're we're doing a listener suggestion we will be taking a look at a um a definitely a very little known case kind of similar i think significantly more obscure so um this has definitely been a fun bit of research so far but i knew you would love doing the research for this yeah we yeah. got the email <laughs> the <laughs> the county coroner who i emailed for a files request <laughs> He's got a really cute picture on his website where he's just like really cheese. And I'm like, you're a coroner. You should not look that happy. Um, but he loves his job. You're allowed to love your job. You are. And it's important. I mean, I don't even get me started on coroners. We heard that during election season. I will I will pipe <laughs> back in about that during the next election season. Anyway, uh, we will be taking a look at the murder of Stephanie Mori which took place in a rural, like, mid-central southern Illinois uh, in the mid-90s. And really, in many ways, it's a story about um, instincts. And, um, yeah, how sometimes sometimes your instincts are right. Hmm. Yeah. So please I'm excited. I'm excited. Like we said, this is a re- listener request, yeah. so it will be... Special shout outs to our listeners yes. that send in requests. Thank you for that. We love listener requests. We really do. Um, so please, if you feel compelled, keep them coming because I don't think we've ever not done one. I don't think we've ever not done one. And some, they are some of my favorite episodes that we've done. Yeah, me too. Me too. And yeah, sometimes, especially for like one like this, it's probably not a case I would have found without it. Ever. Um, yeah. So yeah, just, and these are really like, to our mission right like the cases we want to be talking about so exactly so please keep them coming all right yeah so on that note uh come back in the meantime engage with us on the internet on the socials at midwretched uh we would love to be talking to you and please uh send a happy little joyful woo to to mick on the occasion of her wedding uh send me vibes guys it's gonna be hellish it'll be beautiful (laughs) it'll be great it'll be great it'll be great there will be tacos there are gonna be tacos there's gonna be so many tacos and yeah yeah it'll be great so um until next time friends please be nice and eat cheese and know that we love you and we love love on this special wedding edition of my wretched okay bye This is the story of the brutal murderer. Why did I even write that if I knew that I couldn't say it? This is the (laughs) brutal. The Swedish chef is here.
<laughs> Special guest for the Swedish show. Uh, <laughs> uh, 